All right, good morning. Happy New Year. Officially, we are officially in 2024 this year. How, how many of you have, are still keeping that resolution you made last week? How are we doing there? Oh, okay, a few of you. I am actually uh, want to thank you for coming back this week. I wasn't sure how many would after. It was a little bit intense last week because we wanted to turn, as we turn to this new year, focus attention on the reality that we are in a war, as we just sang about in the, one of the stanzas in that last song together. And this war is something that began a long time ago. In fact, at the end of the sixth day of creation, God saw all that he had made. And Genesis 1 says it was very good. He was pleased. But rebellion came at the hand of Satan when he took a third of the angels of heaven with him in rebellion against God and then drew us into that rebellion, deceiving Eve and drawing Adam in so that the first human beings that were created on that sixth day fell into sin, joined Satan's rebellion. And then God declared in Genesis 3.15 that he was going to deal with that rebellion, that Adam failed, but that he would send a man, the seed of a woman, who would crush the head of the serpent. And so there's been ongoing hostility between God's people and Satan and his minions since that particular day. Humanity waits and waited until that man who would crush the serpent was revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, born uh, as we celebrated on Christmas Day. And he did achieve victory over Satan at the cross. In fact, Hebrews 2.14 tells us that through death, Jesus rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, it says that God, having disarmed the rulers and authorities, made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in Christ. Even though Christ appeared powerless on the cross, it was actually Satan who was rendered powerless through the cross. Uh, that humiliating public display of Jesus hanging on the cross was actually God's public display of humiliation for Jesus's enemies. And as the nails were being driven into the Savior, he was driving Satan from his foothold on this creation. So at the cross, the story of the Bible tells us at the cross that the seed of the woman has come and the seed of the woman has, has crushed the head of the serpent. He is one. And one day he will return to complete that victory. For now he offers freedom from sin, freedom from Satan, for any who would put their trust in him, as Bruce so wonderfully communicated just a moment ago. But Jesus has not yet completed his victory fully. That will happen when he returns. And we all take communion together with him. And then we will follow him down as he rides on the white horse, defeats his enemies, judges his enemies, and saves his friends. And that day is coming. But until that point in time, in God's providence, he's allowed this war to continue. A war in which everyone is involved, as we talked about last week. This war still rages, and it's one that Paul reminds the people of Ephesus, the saints at Ephesus of, as he closes his letter to the Ephesians. And we looked at it there last week, and I'd like to continue in that. We'll be starting again in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. So if you could be turning there, and I'd like this week if we could please stand as I read from God's Word, just in respect for His Word. We'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. 
Paul closes the letter with these words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Also receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times with all prayer and petition in the spirit. And to this end, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Lord, as we look to your word today, we do ask for your insight, for your illumination. We ask that your spirit would give us understanding and that he would enable and empower us to live out the instruction that you give us through your word. And I pray, God, that we would be encouraged, motivated, helped, Lord, in how to fight in this battle that we are in. We thank you for your son who has won the victory and we eagerly await the day when he returns to complete it. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So again, last week we were reminded as we looked at the first few verses there of Ephesians 6, uh, 10 to 12, that you and I are all in a war, but it's not a war against other human beings. It's not against flesh and blood, Paul points out, but it is actually against spiritual beings. And therefore, it is a spiritual war. We are engaged in spiritual warfare. And that enemy, as Paul described, is none other than the devil. None other than the rulers, the authorities, the spiritual forces of wickedness, the devil and his minions, the devil and his demons. And last week we focused attention on knowing our enemy and knowing his strategy. We talked about his various schemes or tactics that he uses. Paul describes that, that we have a, uh, an enemy who has these tactics as we would expect in any war. And so we talked about some of the more common tactics that our enemy uses. If you remember, one was to pervert the truth, right? That's his main attack, to undermine, confuse, to cloud the truth. And then the key truth he wants to cloud is exactly the one that Bruce explained to us earlier, the gospel. Satan doesn't want the gospel to be clearly articulated and proclaimed as was done earlier today. And so he's doing everything he can to confuse the gospel. He's doing everything he can to pervert it, to hinder it from being proclaimed. In addition to that, we talked about that Satan is the great tempter. So certainly that is one of the tools in his toolbox as well. And he also seeks to sow discord among us. He looks to take advantage of any bitterness, unforgiveness, conflict, and sees that as an opportunity. And then finally, we looked at affliction as another tool that the enemy uses in order to fight. So these are the tactics in this spiritual warfare that we are engaged in. And again, I want to just remind us of this because, you know, over the years, I've read a number of books that talk about spiritual warfare, a number of books. And I have to say, there's a lot of unbiblical and dangerous teaching in many of those books. Indeed, Satan has done a masterful job to distract and confuse 
He wants to divert our attention away from what does God say about how do we fight in this war? And he's introduced through many false and bad teachings, other strategies. And we should expect this, right? Of course, as the great deceiver, he would want to deceive us, especially in this area. He would want us to be confused about what is this spiritual war we are engaged in? How do we fight in this war? Again, remember, that's his primary strategy is to confuse, to pervert, to to change the truth. And so we should expect that from him. And I think many Christians have been lured in by the master of deception. They have listened to his faulty intelligence that he has provided. And they're using the wrong weapons and the wrong armor because they don't understand the enemy and don't understand his tactics and don't understand what is the spiritual war that we are engaged in. And so Paul tells us here that in this war that we are engaged in, what is the primary statement he makes? He repeats it a couple of times. We must do what? Put on the armor, take up the full armor of God. But before considering that armor, we need to know our strategy. That is, we need to understand what spiritual warfare is and what it is not. And so that's where I want to focus our attention this morning is what spiritual warfare is and what it is not. And I'll start with the negative first. What spiritual warfare is not. Because many of the popular books and sermons and articles that I have come across, and perhaps you have as well, those things on spiritual warfare, say that, many of them say that nearly every problem we face, every sin that we struggle with, every health problem that we have, every lack of success in life, every negative event is probably because Satan and his demons are behind it. And so they tell us, you need to identify that demon that's causing the problem. You need to identify that evil spirit that is bringing this trial and affliction in your life. And you need to rebuke it. You need to have this prayer formula. There's these secret codes. There's all these practices, some of which are a little bit bizarre. For example, one book said, once demons gain entrance to a human body, they establish strongholds within a person. But there is a chain of commands that controls these strongholds and demons these ruling spirits and strongholds in a person ultimately take their orders from the strong man in the heavenlies. In order to destroy the stronghold, one must bind up the strong man in the heavenlies, cut off and cast out all cords between the strong man and the spirits inside the person, and then you can continue the deliverance. And so they've come up with these formulas and strategies, and okay, you have to deal with this particular demon, but before that you need to deal with the one that is over him, the one in authority over him. And then he continued with this illustration. In one case I experienced, the spirit of lung cancer, and he put lung cancer in capital letters, refused to leave. Upon questioning, the spirit said he couldn't leave because high blood pressure, again in capital letters, blocked him. Unless high blood pressure left first, he couldn't leave. And when we cast out high blood pressure, then lung cancer left. And then ironically, he adds this caution. Of course, spirits could be trying to fool you by stalling for time. There are many books like this. But they claim our struggle with sin, our struggle with health problems, that all of these issues is because of evil spirits. And you'll see these books name these evil spirits. Again, uh, the spirit of alcoholism, the demon of lust. The devil of abuse, pride, anger, murder, self-will, nicotine, gluttony, and all these are capitalized. And then they even speak of the, the demon of defiance that will dwell within your kids. Sometimes it does look like a demon, but... 
But basically, they're just putting the responsibility and the blame on these things outside of us, these evil spirits that are attacking us. And they say that is what spiritual warfare is. So we need to identify and engage that demon, that evil spirit who's causing your health problems, who's drawing you into sin. You must rebuke and claim authority. I actually was watching one particular event where this guy was casting out demons and this this one man came up with stomach cancer and he kind of just walked up he's frail suffering and the guy punches him in the stomach that's how he said that he needed to free him from the demons so he just he just gut punches him i mean hard this guy was big and i'm like looking like that poor dude he just fell to the ground he's ah you're healed you know it's just it would be laughable if it wasn't so serious And these guys, they'll elaborate and give these extensive explanations of how demons can sneak in all these different ways into your life and get control. Even through cartoons and movies or what some call soul ties that you might have to someone else who's demon possessed. And that through your um, uh, blood relationship with that person, the demon can then get into your life. And they have all these elaborate uh, uh, things that they use to describe how demons can come in and attack you. And so as a result of this. They've really reduced our sanctification, our discipleship, that is our, our following and walking in Christ. They've reduced it to uh, locating and eliminating an evil spirit that's the cause of that. And then taking steps to keep him out or them out. I read one book, I uh, was describing a counseling session the pastor had where this couple had gotten together and they were in, in conflict with one another. So they came to see the pastor and then they got into an argument right in the office with the pastor. And so the husband stands up and begins rebuking demons in his wife. And then the wife stood up and was doing the same thing, rebuking demons in her husband. Thomas, you ever had that happen to you? In a... Again, <laughs> it, it would be funny if it wasn't so serious. So what do we make of all this? Can believers be controlled by evil spirits? Do we sin because of demons? Is sanctification really just the process of identifying those demons and evil spirits in your life and then dealing with them, rebuking them, casting them out? Should our counseling sessions really become exorcisms? The spiritual warfare consists of all of this. Demon hunts, deliverances. Binding of evil spirits. What does the Bible say? Right? That's where we need to go. What does the Bible say about spiritual warfare and how to engage in this? Because certainly we see the presence of demons all over Scripture, don't we? It's not like they don't exist and it's not like they don't attack and it's not like we don't see engagements that happen and take place, especially in the Gospels, right? Especially when Jesus came. There was a lot of activity. But we need to understand what, what, how do we engage And that's why as we reflect on Paul's words in Ephesians 6, did you see anything like what I was describing a few minutes ago? Is that how Paul said we need to deal with this? Is that how Paul said we need to engage? Notice verse 10, he said, be strengthened in the Lord. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God. Verse 13, take up the full armor of God. Verse 14, stand firm. And then he lays out what he meant by armor of God and what that entails. So here in Ephesians 6, which, by the way, is the most extensive passage in the New Testament on spiritual warfare. Do you see any commands to bind a strong man? Do you see any instruction to cast out a demon? Do you see any charge by Paul here 
to name and rebuke evil spirits. In fact, Ephesians 6 doesn't mention any of this. Well, okay, but Tim, what about other passages in the Bible? Right? We need to look at all of God's Word, don't we? To see what it, how it addresses any particular topic. So let's do that. Let's look at a few other, the most, the other key text in the New Testament on spiritual warfare. Turn to, uh, with me to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. Like Paul, Peter also ends this letter in 1 Peter, where he's speaking to a group who are suffering, who are particularly suffering under persecution. And Peter has a similar final instruction or addresses the same topic as he comes to the end of that letter. Notice what he says, beginning in verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore, humble yourselves, excuse me, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world brought this passage up last week describing our enemy who prowls about as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And in the context here, Peter was speaking to those suffering persecution, indicating Satan as remember, we talked about affliction being one of the ways that he attacks. So I think here Peter is noting the fact that they were suffering persecution, some of which would be at the hands of Satan. But definitely as they were going through a trial, Peter says, look, be sober, watch out, be careful. You are vulnerable. You are vulnerable. There's this prowling lion, the devil, who is roaming about. But notice, what did Peter say in response to that? How did he say to fight? I rebuke you, Satan. Does he command Satan to leave? Does he tell us that we need to declare our authority over him and cast him out? Is that the response Peter says to give? What did he say here? Verse 8, be sober. Pay attention, be on the lookout, be watchful, and then resist. Resist. Strong in faith. Resist him by trusting in God. How do we do that? Well, if we look at the context here, verse 6, Peter's talking about being humble, humbling ourselves before God, humbling ourselves under his mighty hand, trusting in him, having faith in him. And through that, resisting, standing against literally is what that word means. James also had something to say about our enemy in James chapter four. So flip back one book to James, James four. We're going to look at uh, starting in verse seven. James four, seven, after he's been talking about. uh, Conflict, the source of conflict. Verse seven, he says, be subject, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded Be miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Why is he saying all that? Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Now notice here, he too mentions the enemy. And notice here, he says the same thing Peter says. Resist. Resist. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do we do that? Well, look around in the context. What is he saying here? Be subject to God. Draw near to God. Have an attitude and heart of repentance and humble yourselves before him. And then notice it says he will exalt you. He will give you victory. There's nothing here about delivering people from demons. Again, the emphasis here is resist, be humble, trust, draw near. Okay, let's look at another text. Second Corinthians 10. Paul here again mentions spiritual warfare explicitly in Second Corinthians chapter 10. He says this. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. There we go. Spiritual warfare for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for tearing down of strongholds. Aha, here we go. Now we're talking, right? Paul, you're talking about divinely powerful weapons. We're going to destroy the fortresses of the enemy. That sounds like some binding and rebuking is going to happen here, right? We'll keep reading again. Notice the context. What does Paul say next? After saying that divinely powerful for the tearing down the strongholds, verse five, as we tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is fulfilled. What's the battleground here? What does Paul draw attention to as the war taking place? Truth. You see it? Knowledge, speculation, thought. You see, again, Satan's key strategy is to do what? To pervert the truth, to confuse it, to cloud it, to deceive. And so Paul here says, as we're engaged in this warfare, we have divinely powerful weapons, but it's not casting out, rebuking and none of that. He's talking about understanding and defending and declaring truth. And anything that is false, taking that captive, placing it under, submitting it to the doctrines of Christ, the truth of Christ, the person of Christ and the work of Christ. So Paul says to rebuke false teaching, not to rebuke the spiritual entity behind it. But to address the falsehood that's being given through it. Expose it, speak against it and then obey it. You see that there? Again, no mention here of what we often see today. So these are the, the four primary texts. Ephesians 6, 1 Peter 5, 2 Corinthians 10, and James 4, which describe or mention the devil and our war or engagement with him as our enemy. And in every one of those texts, there is no instruction at all to engage directly with the demon. None. No command to cast out, no command to rebuke, no instruction to engage directly. The believers are not commanded anywhere to do this. Nowhere. Now, of course, there are numerous examples, as I mentioned earlier, in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, of demonic activity where Jesus and his disciples did engage with demons and did cast them out and did rebuke him. Well, what about that, Tim? Well, let's remember this. Those occurrences are described in historical narratives. 
And these narratives are simply telling us what happened, not necessarily what we are supposed to do. This is an important difference and distinction that we need to understand because narratives are descriptive by nature, not prescriptive. What do I mean by that? That is, narratives are stories, right? They're events describing events that took place. So they're describing, they're telling that story. But it's not that in every single event we need to prescribe or follow or do or have some response to that story that we are commanded to do. For I'll give you a couple examples in a minute. But this is one of the most common errors that I see in studying biblical narratives is that every single event that happens in the story, someone will make an application of that event that we need to do it too. Because this biblical character did it or because this happened to this particular person in the Bible, then therefore we must do the same thing. I'd have a problem with that when you look at the life of David and his many wives. You know, that would be kind of something to consider. But again, just because something happened doesn't mean that's the requirement or the norm at all time for every person. Let me give a few examples. Do you remember Matthew 17, the temple tax, when Peter said, we need to pay the tax. And you remember what Jesus told him to do? Go fishing, right? So he catches a fish, opens it up. The tax is inside. Oh, how I wish that's how we could do it. (laughs) Actually, probably not for me because I'm not a very good fisherman, but I'd have my son-in-law, John, go out for me and. Right. It's because that's how they did it is the expectation. And that's how we are called to do it. Or what about the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew 14, right? Jesus took just a, a few couple of fish, a few loaves of bread, and he fed thousands and thousands of people after blessing it. Is that how we're called to do it? So just grab one pea, maybe a little piece of fish, put it on your table and, and pray. And then all of a sudden, now that could work for George Mueller, but I think for the rest of us, right, this is not telling us just because this happened in this way in in the book, in the Gospels, that this is exactly what we are called to do as well. Or how about traveling across water? Remember that event, right? Matthew 14, Jesus walked across the water and then Peter, he tells Peter, get out of the boat and walk. Remember that story, right? So is this how then we are to do it? Get away with boats, remove them all. We don't need them anymore. I mean, obviously not. I'm not trying to be silly, but I'm just trying to show you. It's just because an event takes place doesn't mean, ah, well, that's how I have to do it or that it's calling me or exhorting me to do that. Again, narratives are descriptive, not prescriptive. That does not mean there is a, not a point to the narrative. Certainly the author has a point. Certainly there is a spiritual prescriptive element to stories, but that is found in the point of the story, not in all the events that take place in the story. You following me? I spend like a whole week on this with uh, the guys that I'm training overseas. But it's really important to understand when we approach different genres in the Bible, different styles of writing, how do you approach them? Because it will be different. As you look in an epistle, that is direct instruction with commands, exhortations, things directly to follow. But as you look at a story, the instruction is found in the point of the story. It's like the parables. Right. Jesus often used stories himself to communicate a particular truth. But in that, there was a point to each of those parables that he intended them to understand and respond to. Not every part of the parable. Like, for example, um, the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan has been famously 
um, interpreted as, you know, that there's each part of this parable has a particular spiritual element that we're to apply and that the the man that was attacked was Adam and that the attackers were Satan and that the, the, the Levite and the priest represented the Old Testament and the law and they couldn't help him. Right. But then the Samaritan comes along, who is Jesus, who could help him. And Jesus takes him to the inn, which is the church. My favorite part is the innkeeper was the Apostle Paul. You know, so this is a very traditional interpretation of the parable. Well, they've broken down this parable into all these different pieces that each has spiritual meaning. But that wasn't the point at all. The parable Jesus was trying to explain to them who is my neighbor. Right. It's the same in biblical narrative. There is a point that the author is giving through the story, but don't take every single event out of the story and assume then that that is what applies to us in the same exact way. Now, in the case of Jesus and the disciples, we learn explicitly in Acts 2, verse 22, and also in Hebrews chapter 2, that these miracles and signs that they carried out, including casting out demons, were all meant to authenticate their message and authenticate their authority. That's exactly what Hebrews 2 says. In fact, let me read it to you. Hebrews 2, 4. God testifying with them. Speaking of the apostles, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the spirit, according to his own will. Again, just because Jesus and the disciples did it doesn't mean we're commanded to do it. Okay, now there are many parts in narrative which are direct instruction, right? We have many times where Jesus does give direct instruction. Sermon on the Mount would be one example and that we would take directly as well. But but when we look at events that take place. Remember, descriptive, not prescriptive. Now, some might point to, well, what about Mark 16? Mark 16, verse 17, Jesus says this, or it is written that he said this. These signs will accompany those who have believed in my name and they will cast out demons. Ah, here we go. And they will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Okay, well, that seems to be saying, look, all believers are going to be casting out demons, performing miracles, doing all of these things. But if you look in the context here, I think Jesus is speaking primarily of his apostles. And there's this whole question, which I think Pastor Thomas addressed when uh, you did John 8, that this passage in Mark 16 is not in the original text. So this is not the best one to use to defend position that we're commanded to cast out Demons, And I refer you to John 8. You talked about this, right, Thomas? Refer to that for the explanation of of why. Now, while the Gospels and Acts are primarily descriptive, the epistles, as I said, are primarily prescriptive. And we looked at four epistles, four passages in the New Testament on spiritual warfare that give us direct instruction of what we're to do and not to do. And these letters were written for the express purpose of teaching believers how to live in Christ. And so that's why they are full of imperatives. They're full of commands, full of exhortations and full of instruction, because that is the nature of the epistles. So when looking for what Scripture says on how to engage in spiritual warfare, you don't focus attention on the descriptive passages, but the prescriptive ones. Like when we talk about marriage, we don't go to David and the kings of Israel as our example, do we? No, we go to prescriptive passages that call us to be husbands of one wife, that that we look to prescriptive texts that tell us 
how to be married. So, none of the prescriptive passages we looked at from Peter or Paul or James, none of them tell us to identify a demon, to bind the strong man, to cast out the devil, or to blame our sin or trials or affliction on a demon that we have to get rid of. None of them. And I can't overemphasize this point because we have to be clear on how the engage, how to engage the enemy and what this enemy is and what this war is. So we have to look at the prescriptive passages. But before we do that, I want to talk about one notion that is common in many of these books that I've mentioned before, and that is, can Christians be demon-possessed or controlled by a demon? I read one book where an author said this, to deliverance ministers, the question, can Christians have demons, is not even worth pondering. Experiences with thousands of deliverance sessions leave no doubt in my mind that Christians not only can, but do have demons. Another author said this, the question is not whether Christians can have demons, but rather, can I ever find a Christian without a demon? That's quite a claim. Is it true? A careful study of scripture shows that believers can be afflicted by demons. We can be attacked by demons. In fact, that's what Paul says. We struggle against them, right? That's who our war is against. But we cannot be indwelt by them. You cannot be, if you're a follower of Christ, if you are a Christian, if you're a child of God, you cannot be controlled by a demon or an evil spirit. In fact, there's no example in the Bible of a genuine believer under the control of a demon. Now, well, wait a minute. Hold on. What about Ananias and Sapphira? Right. Peter said there in Acts chapter five that Satan had filled their heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. But where in the text does it say they're believers? Just because they attended church and we're even going to give a lot to the church, does that mean they're Christian? We're never we're not told that. Don't make that assumption. Or what about David in First Chronicles 21? Right. It says that he was moved by Satan to count his army. Ah, see, well, the word move there doesn't mean controlled. It means to entice. This idea of, of inciting or enticing. And Satan could have used any number of ways to do that. We aren't told how he enticed David to number his army, just that Satan was involved in that, right? And we know that. And Satan does tempt. Satan does entice. But David wasn't under the control of him. Himenaeus and Alexander are mentioned in 1 Timothy 1.20, and Paul says he's handing them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Well, there, these men were not believers. They were actually false teachers in the church. And so Satan was saying, I want them out of the church. <laughs> uh, Peter, Paul was saying that. 1 Chronicle, or Corinthians 5, Paul says to deliver a man guilty of incest over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And he's not referring to control here, but he's saying, look, put him out of the church and as he's afflicted, Lord willing, he will brought, be brought to repentance. But again, the, there are examples, many examples in the Bible of believers that are being tempted or afflicted or even deceived by false teaching. But there is no case where a genuine believer is under the control or indwelt by an evil spirit. The Bible is clear about this. Christians are not under Satan's authority. In fact, Colossians 1.13 says, God rescued us. 
from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You're rescued from the domain of darkness. You're not in there anymore. You're not under his control. You're not under his authority. Yes, he attacks. But it's different now. First John five eighteen. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he that is Christ who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. The word keep here means to guard or preserve or protect. The word touch here has the idea of to take hold of, to have close conflict uh, contact with or to bring harm to. And it says right in this text that Jesus does not allow that to happen to his children. No one can touch us in the sense of grasping and controlling us. He keeps us. He guards us. And I think Jesus is pretty strong. I don't think he's going to have a problem in that capacity. Do you? Well, if there's too many of them around here, I can't control all these. I can't keep them back. First John four, four. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. And in the context here, he's talking about those teaching false and demonic doctrines. You have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Notice here, John makes a clear distinction. He says, God dwells in you. Satan dwells outside. God is in you. Satan is in the world. You see that distinction? And believe me, Jesus is not going to let Satan control or take hold. We belong to Christ and he won't share us with any demon. We saw last week, demons are not responsible for our sin. Because that would be the question that comes up. Well, what about those something like that? Remember James 1.14, we said that we are enticed. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his or her own fleshly lusts. Paul said in Galatians 5.16, I say to you, walk by the spirit. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And then he goes through what the desires of the flesh are, what the fruit of the spirit is. But in that text, he says we're either under control by our fleshly desires or by the spirit. There's no third category for believers. Paul doesn't mention anywhere there about, oh, well, there's also the chance too you could have a demon controlling you. No, it's either you walk by the spirit and then live out the fruit of the spirit in your life or you're walking by the flesh. Or believers. Two categories. That's it. Indeed, again, demons can tempt us. Demons can attack and do attack. And sometimes ferociously. They can come with physical affliction. They can seek to deceive through false teaching. They can tempt us in various ways to pursue our sinful desires. But look, if you are in Christ, brothers and sisters, you cannot be possessed by a demon. You can't be controlled by an evil spirit. As powerful as Satan himself is, even he cannot enter and control you if you're Christ's. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus will keep you and no one can touch you. Yet, despite this instruction from the word, there are still many who teach that Satan can touch you. That, in fact, evil spirits can dwell in believers. Now, why do they believe this? Listen to what one author says. Theological arguments must give way to experience. 
Even scientists, as if that's the upper echelon, even scientists are known to abandon pet theories when actual experiences do not support them. Over 99% of the people I have delivered have been born-again, tongue-speaking Christians, including many pastors. If you do not believe that Christians can have demons, I suggest you attend a number of my deliverance sessions. What is he saying here? What's the ultimate determination of truth then, according to this guy? Experience. Oh, yes, we know those can be trusted, right? That we're to interpret the Bible in light of our experience. Wow, it's sounding a lot like what happened in the garden, isn't it? It's almost like Satan's sticking with that strategy because it works. Well, what is the problem, right? Our experiences are subjective. The Bible is objective. And so we have to look at our experiences through the lens of Scripture, right? Not the other way around. And the Bible tells us believers are under God's care, not Satan's control. It also tells us that to fight in this war, we're not to be focused on binding Satan and casting him out, but rather by resisting him, putting on the armor of God. But if we ignore the Bible's plain instruction on how to engage in spiritual warfare in search of an experience, then we open ourselves up to danger. I've actually seen this firsthand. I mean, do you think a being as intelligent and as powerful as Satan, would he not be more than willing to give experiences in order to convince us? I mean, he'd even be willing to have demons show themselves and flee. Ah, see, they're real. It happens. And I just cast him out. Therefore, this must be how I'm supposed to do it. Not, do you not think Satan would be willing to do that at times in order to deceive? He's not dumb. He knows how susceptible we are to trusting an experience more than truth. Again, now Satan and demons, they can dwell unbelievers. We see many examples of that in Scripture. But if you're ever confronted by an evil spirit, don't focus on the spirit. Pray to God and preach the gospel to the person. Let's say you could deliver that guy from the demon. Let's say that, okay, here's the process how to do that. Get the demon out of there. Do you remember what Jesus said when a demon leaves? What happens? He talked about this in Matthew. Actually, he comes back eventually and he brings more with him. But, but... If that person hears and understands and responds to the gospel so that he becomes a child of God, no demon can come back and enter him. You're not helping a person by dealing with the demon. You need to deal with the person. Bring them the gospel. And I've seen several examples of this take place where people are demon possessed. OK, they're around. More than we realize. But how do you deal with that? Do you engage with the demon or bring the truth to the person? They need the gospel. That's what we're free. I remember an account in Russia. I was told about this by a friend who had seen it uh, there. And this guy, he was in the pastor's office and he just was went ballistic. He was um, full of demons. You know, they were all screaming and yelling. Well, the, the, the group of men that were there just were praying together and they kept preaching the gospel. This guy, after two hours, the guy repented. The demons left and he's serving faithfully in the church there now. Just an amazing example. Again, we don't let experience dictate, okay? But I'm just telling you, that did validate 
exactly what the Bible teaches us is that we all need the gospel first and foremost, don't we? We need to know the truth. That's what will set us free. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful. I know I've spent a lot of time here on what the spiritual warfare is not because I'm concerned. And I have a chance to travel, as you know, a lot of different places in the world. I'm exposed to the church all around the world. And I'm concerned because I see this this notion of needing to cast out demons to free believers from sins or from trials or from difficulties. It's contrary to God's word first. But secondly, it steers people away from what they really need to focus on. Because if my sanctification is just about dealing with the demons and outside forces that are attacking me, then I don't focus on how the Bible tells me to deal with sanctification. That, that the sin I committed is my fault. That I desired that thing or that action. And then I need to repent and take the steps of genuine repentance to deal with that. Relying on the Spirit, relying on Christ, walking by the Spirit. But I'm concerned because what happens when you make it all about demons and everything else, the struggle continues because you're not really dealing with the problem, are you? In fact, you're opening yourself up to some more dangerous things. Listen, we're not designed to fight Satan and his demons on their turf, on their terms. I've seen firsthand what has happened with this. When I was younger, I was attending a church that practiced deliverance ministries, and they had a regular practice of these deliverance sessions casting out demons and i saw several of them myself and i remember at one point after a period of time uh, full-grown adults after these deliverance sessions began acting like children for extended periods some of them sucking their thumbs talking like toddlers um, and the explanation by the people doing the deliverance is well, well they had this demon ever since they were two years old and so now they sort of regress back to that point now that the demon's out of their life. And so this, and then this went on for extended periods of time, like, like months in some cases, where you'd have a 25-year-old woman walking around talking like a little kid. And it was bizarre. Well, it got worse there at this church. They began to believe that actual physical assault would help in the process of deliverance, kind of like that guy that punched the, the man in the gut. So they began beating and whipping people, including children, including infants. One lady miscarried who was pregnant after a process of deliverance. Well, eventually the police found out and they actually were um, dealt with by government authorities, but it got bad. They were totally bought into this whole system. Yeah, that may be extreme case. I don't think it is. But listen, Satan is a dangerous and powerful foe. Even though Christ has won the victory, he still is allowing Satan to roam about as a roaring lion. Now, Satan can't do anything unless God allows it. But God still does allow him to roam. And so how do we fight? What is this spiritual warfare we're engaged in? How do we engage in this battle? Well, you'll have to come back next week. But let me just remind us of one thing before I close. 
You know, Paul talks about putting on the armor of God, right? He repeats that more than once as he's describing how to engage in the enemy, with the enemy. But I want to remind us of something that I think is very important to remember as we consider this. And that is that as we look at putting on the armor, you have to remember first to be able to use the armor. We need to have the God of armor in us. You can't put on the armor of God without having the God of the armor in you. You know what I mean by that? You first must be of Christ before you can rely on Christ in this spiritual war. As we talked about last week. You're on one side or the other. There's no neutral ground. There's either those who are children of God, those who are children of the devil. First John, I read a passage that even said it that way. And so if if you are not in Christ, then you are not under his authority and rule and protection. I'm not saying that to be dramatic, but that's the truth. That's why Colossians 1 says, for any who put their trust in Christ, he rescues you from the domain of darkness. You've been rescued. You don't have to fear. But if you have not put your trust in Christ, as Bruce so wonderfully explained earlier, then you do have to fear. But you're someone more worse to fear than Satan even. Because what happens when you die is you will face your Creator, who you and I have sinned against, who you and I both deserve His judgment, eternal judgment. And yet, He sent His Son in order to deliver us from not only Satan's domain and his control, but also sin's consequences. We want to praise God for Christ and His victory at the cross And though we are still waiting for him to complete that victory when he returns, though we are still in a battle, as Paul said, be strengthened in the Lord, put on his armor and you can fight. You can engage.